The scripture reading and preaching today will be from Luke 22, verses 1 through 23. If you could turn there and then stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 22, starting in verse 1, reads, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. Who was of the number of the twelve? He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, "Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it." They said to him. Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, we uh, now enter into uh, possibly the longest chapter in all of the Gospel of Luke, uh, not necessarily by, by verse count, but in terms of how many events happen and also just by sheer length. The, chapter 22 has a lot of stuff going on and a lot of moving pieces. And as you've, as you've no doubt noticed, the last several weeks as we've been moving from chapter 19 to chapter 20, last week to chapter 21, um, there's a number of, of things that Luke is kind of cashing in on now that he's been developing in his gospel since the inception of it. And he expects some degree of familiarity uh, with the Old Testament and some degree of familiarity with other things that he's written previously in Luke's gospel so that when he introduces it again later, uh, we would recognize and recall all of what he's kind of laid down for us. And, and this text um, introduces a number of those same concepts. For instance, the conflict between the chief priests and the, the scribes and, and Jesus. We, we've already got that story in motion for the last couple of weeks. Um, here, uh, he's going to introduce something called the Passover, uh, which we obviously have uh, as our, uh, a habit in our church. We observe the Lord's Supper every week, so that won't be brand new to all of you. But in terms of the movement of Luke's gospel, this is something that's being introduced for the first time and the only time in the gospel of Luke. Um, and he's expecting some familiarity with what's gone on in the Old Testament to set that up. And so uh, 
I'm, say all, I'm saying all this to say there's a lot of things, probably at least three different topical sermons that we could do in just the first 23 verses of chapter 22. For instance, we could spend a whole Sunday just on the, uh, the dynamic between Judas's uh, own activity, his own willingness, and Satan's influence on Judas's uh, activities in the betrayal of Jesus. We could do a whole Sunday just on that. We could do a whole Sunday uh, setting up what is the significance between the Passover and the Lord's Supper? How do these things intertwine and move together? And we could spend a whole Sunday just unpacking what it exactly is that Jesus is saying when he says, this is the new covenant that's poured out in my blood. Uh, So instead of doing any of those things, we're going to spend one Sunday uh, doing each of those three things. So we're going to (laughs) do point one, point two, point three. There you have it. Each of the topics we're going to try to introduce here. Um, And so the first one we have to start with, because we'll be pressed for time rather immediately, uh, is with with Judas. So in uh, chapter 22, we are introduced once again to this kind of transitional movement. Uh, Chapter 22, verse 1 says, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is now drawing near. Uh, The Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover happen uh, one after the other. So the Passover would happen, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen uh, would happen in the in the following following days. So so that these two events kind of set up together and dovetail. So that when they reference the feast of unleavened bread, contained within that day is the actual eating of the Passover meal in the week of the unleavened bread feast. So when he says the unleavened bread feast uh, draws near, that's the same thing as saying the Passover is about to take place. And the chief priests and the scribes, they're during this time of celebration, seeking to put to G- put Jesus to death, right? And we've already seen the reason they can't just go out and grab him is because he has the crowd and the people on his side. If they were to go grab him in public, they might start a riot. And so they're seeking another way to try to put him to death, uh, a way that would be away from the people and away from, the, uh, away from causing some, uh, some huge uh, t- tumultuous uh, riot. Um, and as many commentators point out, that's rather ironic considering how all the events actually end up going down after Jesus is betrayed, because they end up starting pretty much a revolt in in Judea. But at this point, they're trying not to do that, and so they're looking for other ways, other means by which they can get to Jesus. And so here comes something which we might call providential. Uh, We could say it's tragic. Uh, We could say it's surprising. Uh, We see that the means by which Jesus is going to be betrayed is by one of his own apostles. So one of the 12 that he handpicked as ministers of his gospel, as the first who would go out to the Judean peoples and name the gospel and preach about the salvation which is coming at the hands of Jesus, one of those 12 men will now be the one who betrays Jesus. And we see that in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Jesus, called Iscariot, who was a number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers about how he might betray him to them. And they, the chief priests and the officers, were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. So what Judas does, logistically, is he introduces an opportunity to have an insider man who can, who can get Jesus alone. And when Jesus is alone, praying, whatever, when he's not around a crowd can go and grab the authorities and pull them in and say, hey, here's Jesus alone in the cover of night or in darkness, and here he is, you can come and get him now. So Judas introduces something that the the scribes and the chief priests would not otherwise 
have had access to doing. They, they would have had no other way of getting Jesus alone because the reason they know where Jesus is at is because they know where the crowd is going to follow Jesus, right? So there's no way for them to have a man on the inside unless a man on the inside comes to them and gives an opportunity to betray Jesus. My point is, if Judas doesn't betray Jesus, Jesus, Jesus likely won't be, in terms of human means, he won't be betrayed. He won't be given over, and ultimately he wouldn't be crucified. So Judas betraying Jesus is integral to Jesus, Jesus actually being crucified. And in the betrayal of Jesus, uh, a number of things are happening. Not only is an insider man turning and turning a blind eye towards uh, his own loyalties to the one who's called him, and now he's going to sell him uh, for, for money, uh, but also you have the activity of Satan. Now, uh, we need to say some of this uh, immediately. Um, in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the reality of spiritual forces at work, along with material forces in our world, are assumed, not argued for. So the reality of the supernatural, we might say the spiritual uh, realities of life around, um, those things are just taken as normative in the Old Testament culture and even in the New Testament culture. I mean, Luke doesn't bat an eye to tell you in one breath about the historicity of the census, which is given, and then in the next breath say, uh, and then there was a, a man possessed by a demon and the demon goes out of the man. Luke does not seem to have a problem saying these two things can both exist in the same world together. And I say that because when I was growing up reading texts like this where the, you have the supernatural influencing the material text, it's very easy to think, well, that might be what Luke thought happened. Luke is, Luke is trying to convey how, how depraved Judas is. But the text itself has no problem with Judas being influenced by Satan. Judas being influenced by a supernatural force, which is powerful and manipulative. And as, as we see the development, even of the, the use of the term itself, it just means the accuser. So here you have the, the chief of the demons, the chief of the uh, re rebels against God, um, who goes and seeks to ultimately put the Son of Man to death. Uh, this figure, not by direct linkage, but by tr church tradition, and ultimately by just putting the pieces together of the biblical story, is to be identified with the same serpent that's in the garden, who seeks to thwart humanity's relationship with God in the garden, and succeeds. And who now is seeking to put to death the seed of the woman, who is ultimately here present in Jesus Christ, as has been revealed in Luke uh, chapter 4, when he goes out into the wilderness temptation and squares off against Satan. And at, in Luke chapter 4, we're told by Luke, Satan departed from him after he tried to tempt him, seeking an opportune time. And now the opportune time has come for Satan to enter the picture again. And now he's not going to try to tempt Jesus directly. He's going to seek to influence and coerce humans to try to see if he can do away with this messianic king. And that spiritual influence is true. And also Judas's culpability in the matter is also true. The fact that Satan influences Judas to do this in no way gets Judas off the hook for having done this. The, in fact, uh, as, as one commentator, R.C. Sproul, puts it on this text, he says, what Satan finds in Judas is a willing companion. Satan cannot make any one of us do anything beyond what we already want to do. What Satan does is he plays on human wants and desires and inclinations, but Satan has no power to turn the human heart. 
God, the sovereign God, has the power to turn the human heart and can do so for the good of humanity. But Satan has no such power. Satan is not some God who rivals Yahweh and they're struggling together over human hearts. So what we see here is Judas, who has set himself up for failure and has found an opportune moment with Satan to influence him to ultimately betray the Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, in Judas, we learn the, the age-old lesson uh, of hindsight being 2020, right? How many of you uh, have already read the Gospels, and so by the time we get to here in Luke's Gospel, you go, oh, Judas, bad guy. I know about him. He's a villain. He's, he's one of the people who ends up on the wrong side of the story. He's bad. And we do that because we know he's going to betray Jesus, but that's an example of how hindsight uh, tries to clarify for us otherwise obscure details. For instance, if you might just glance to the end of the verses that we are looking at today, verse uh, 22 and verse 23 of the chapter. The disciples, the apostles, don't know who's going to betray Jesus. They began to question one another, this is verse 23, which of them it would be who was going to do this. They, they, it's not like Judas sticks out at this moment. And we need to be careful of that because we often tend to think when someone apostatizes from the faith or walks away from uh, their Christian testimony, then we, then we look back at their life and we go, oh, yes, I see how this, that, and the other thing led to that downfall or led to that uh, deconversion or whatever you want to call it. We're not so good at seeing ahead of time how those things are going to play out. In fact, we see those things very dimly. Now, while it is obscured to the other apostles that Judas is going to be the one who betrays Jesus, it is likely not obscured to Judas that he's going to do this. Judas knows his own heart. He knows his own mannerisms. He knows his own uh, uh, conduct towards Jesus. He knows secretly, although he might be masking it externally, what's actually going on in his heart. He knows that he doesn't actually love Jesus and follow him. He knows that he's now just looking for a messianic king, maybe. And when he notices that Jesus is not going to overthrow the Pharisees or not overthrow the, the Romans, he's thinking, how can I get a quick buck out of this before uh, Jesus is killed? So Judas knows his, his, himself rather well. There's nothing in the text to indicate to us that Judas is surprised by his own actions. He only looks back later with regret as to what he's done. So how do we, what, how do we get any benefit from this at all? Well, on the one hand, we see that it is true, sadly so, that in a fallen world, even being an apostle is no guarantee that you're actually saved. Now, I'm going to take that one step further and say, that does not mean that Christians can have no assurance of salvation. But what it does mean is proximity in terms of leadership in the church, uh, knowledge of the scriptures, uh, the ability to recite Bible verses, none of that in any way, shape, or form guarantees that someone is actually a Christian. What actually guarantees faith is a love and an obedience towards God, a love for him, a desire to walk with him, a desire to obey his word and hear his voice and listen to him when he calls. That's what marks a believer. For instance, uh, as another commentator notes in this text, and we haven't quite gotten there, but it's already been read aloud. There's another disciple in this passage, a nameless, faceless disciple, who, is, who we ought to see as contrasted with Judas. 
the one who receives Jesus in the preparation of the Passover meal. There's, there's one man in the city who meets the disciples and has prepared a whole meal for Jesus and, and the twelve. And he's nameless, faceless, goes without being known. Here's a faithful disciple, and here's Judas, the prominent disciple who's the treasurer of the twelve, who is, who is high up in leadership, who is actually going to apostatize and betray the Lord. So just because Judas falls doesn't mean that there's no potential for anyone ever to have assurance of salvation. But Judas falling does mean we should often, we should often examine ourselves. We should often examine our own hearts. Because likely the betrayal that Judas gives over to here in the text, it's likely something that's been brewing in his heart and his thoughts in the deep recess of his, of his mind for some time. Uh, when the love of his Lord grew cold after an initial spark and initial interest and initial excitement, possibly it grew cold for some time and he was able to fake it till he made it. Right? He was able to pretend and pass the smell test and even deceive all the other 11 apostles who were with him. But one really should doubt whether Judas himself was unaware that this was the condition of his own heart. So Christian, uh, how regularly and how carefully do you examine your own affections towards your Savior? This is why, as Christians, not only do we confess our sin regularly, but we also invite other people to know us intimately so that they can ask hard questions of our life. Perhaps you might uh, in family worship sometime this week, or uh, as you're simply uh, meeting someone for coffee or going on a walk with them, you might ask this question. uh, What is a, a habit or an activity in my life currently that could lead to disaster down the road that you see? What's a seed form kind of thing that could set me up for failure in the future? You should, you should, and if you don't know anyone that could speak into your life in that way, you should form relationships with believers who can know you at that level to speak into your life and say, here's what I see is going well for you, and here's what I see is going poorly. Not every sin, like the betrayal of Jesus, happens at the blink of an eye without any prior anticipation. There's many things that can set up that kind of a downfall. And the question as we have to ask as Christians, how good of a job do we do of regularly weeding that out in our own hearts? Regularly making sure that we are keeping careful watch over our souls so that we might endure faithfully until the end. And, and we are not alone in this. We have God's grace in the Holy Spirit. We have his grace in the preaching of his word. And we have his grace in the fellowship of other believers who can say to you, here's where you're going well, and here is where I see doubt, disaster for you in the future. Christian friendships... Uh, are, are called discipleship relationships for a reason. It is because it transcends simply liking someone and hanging out with them, and it goes into edifying one another and seeking their benefit. And we must, as a church, have those kinds of relationships with one another. And not only should we have them, we should regularly make use of them. So perhaps you uh, take advantage of that this week. Lean on your community to seek uh, things in your own life which might need to be checked to be corrected, to be uh, repented of, whatever it may be. So that is at least the first part of the text that we have to deal with. Uh, Judas's betrayal, uh, which again comes up later, but um, we've already seen it's a shock to the other 12, or to the other 11, and so we should not, uh, we should not just look at Judas as a villain. Uh, we should see him as a surprising and shocking, this is a twist, a turn of events in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but hindsight is, uh, is 20-20. 
And that takes us then to the actual focusing on the Passover meal itself. Uh, now, what happens is they go, they're going into a town to observe the Passover. They don't have land or real estate, right? They've already given all that up early on in the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus is going to do something like what he does when he's entering the city in chapter 19. He's going to say, um, I'm sending you ahead of me, and you're going to see this kind of a situation. And when you see that, uh, go meet up with that person. They'll have all the preparations ready for you, just like when he's riding in on a colt. Same kind of thing happens here. Verse 10, uh, he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, there will be a man carrying a jar of water who will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of that house that the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? So Jesus likely has made these preparations ahead of time. This is likely a disciple of Jesus who's here going to receive him and host him for the Passover meal. Um, and so this man, uh, obviously of some wealth, has a large upper room, uh, free and uh, furnished, and he has a Passover meal which is prepared for Jesus and the apostles to eat. And so what they do is they find everything exactly as Jesus has said it, no surprise there. And then they go to eat the Passover meal, and then something interesting happens. In the normal uh, festival of the Passover, Jesus echoes and then changes some of the normal festivities. So, for instance, uh, when, the, when the cup is being passed around, the cup which is normatively given at Passover, um, he reinterprets it, not for the sake of simply saying it actually means something else, but for the sake of saying, we are in a moment right now, redemptively, that is going to change the meaning of this meal forever. Uh, what the Passover was in the Old Testament was the commemoration of the greatest salvation that the Israelites had ever experienced. It is the moment of Israel's redemption. It's when they went from a slave people to a national people. It's when they were introduced to Yahweh, their Savior, at a 12 tribes level, and they saw his mighty hand at work in all of the deliverance. And the Passover recalls that. And in fact, uh, in Exodus uh, 10, 11, 12, and then all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, the Passover is, is constantly given as a refrain, you will eat this Passover meal in remembrance of what Yahweh your God has done to save you out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jesus is saying that what he's going to do in the future, what he's going to do shortly, is significant enough to eclipse the most significant commemorative meal in Israel's history. In fact, he's going to say that the Passover really is all about me and what I'm about to do. That's a shocking turn of events. And you see this in verse uh, 17. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So here's the first meal, which uh, the first cup in the, in the traditional Passover ceremony. There would be between three and four cups uh, passed during that time. But this first cup is to introduce the whole of the meal, so he divides it among the apostles, has them drink it as an introduction. And he's basically saying, this is the last time I'm eating this Passover meal with you. And then he's going to explain how exactly that's going to take place. Because in verse 19, when he's breaking the bread, he begins to talk about himself dying. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he's just told them he's, he's going to not be able to eat the Passover for some time with them. This is the last time he's eating it. Then he's giving them the, the Passover, and he's saying, you're going to eat this regularly 
in remembrance of me after I'm gone. And this bread is my body, which is for you. It's given in place of you. And he goes further and he says, and likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, now this is probably the second or third cup in the Passover ceremony. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so he's, he's reinterpreting elements of the Passover meal in light of what he's, he's about to do. Now this is uh, shocking, uh, we might say. Uh, this, is, uh, this is something we are too familiar with because of how familiar we are with the Lord's Supper. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying the most significant event in all of the redemptive history in Israel is about to be uh, done away with in terms of significance, and it's going to be replaced by something more significant, which is about to happen. And he says, so that when you eat the bread of the Passover meal, you're no longer commemorating the lamb which was slain in place of you and spread over the doorpost. You're not remembering God's salvation of the, of the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. You are going to remember that it is my blood and my body which was given for you. That's what this is about to take on. This is quite significant. And uh, we often fail to appreciate how significant that is. In fact... Uh, I would say I would rival to say in the we- in the Western Church, we have maybe the lowest view of the Lord's Supper that all the church has had in the history of the church. We do in the West, because if you're like me and you grew up in church your whole life, uh, you might have a rather low view, or I-, I might even say a non-view of what actually is happening or taking place in the Lord's Supper. Uh, for instance, when I was growing up. Uh, I would think of the Lord's Supper as it's something we did kind of like how we sing hymns, you know, and then some Sundays we close with communion, right? That's, that's kind of how I grew up in church. And I thought that was normal. I thought that's what every Christian throughout all time and space had thought of the Lord's Supper. But it's just not true. The, the, because it is taking on such significance, uh, we ought to give it heed for what significance uh, is going on. So the first thing to understand then is how does the Lord's Supper and the Passover fit together? Now, uh, if you want to cross-reference this, you could go to Deuteronomy 16, Exodus 12, and you could see these things uh, in that place. But the, the Passover meal is a, is a meal which is given where a lamb, a perfect, spotless, pure lamb without any blemish, is killed, and his, the blood of that lamb is smeared over the doorpost of the house of the people um, so that the firstborn son of the, of the family would not perish. So the lamb dies instead of the firstborn child. And for every house where the lamb's blood is spread, the the destroyer passes over that house and does not kill the firstborn sons of those houses. Now, what this means is, is that the, the lamb literally dies in place of someone else. The Passover lamb dies instead of someone else. Now, every Passover that happens after that moment is remembering and recalling the, that first Passover meal. And so when Jesus says of the, of the bread and the wine that it is his body and his blood which is now in place of you, what he's saying is, you know how that lamb died in place of the firstborn sons of Israel so that they were delivered and they were able to walk free? Uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the lamb that dies in your place. So that Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 can say, Christ, our Passover lamb, Christ is our Passover lamb. And so it takes on massive significance. In fact, uh, my wife and I, we've been uh, going through the book of Revelation recently in family worship. And one of the rich images that takes place in the book of Revelation 
Revelation chapter 5 in particular, is John hears about a lion from the tribe of Judah, which is going to open the scroll and to take care of all the problems uh, of redemptive history up until that point. He's the worthy one who's going to do away with that uh, and, and finally unravel God's plan. And then when John looks, he sees a slain lamb. Not a lion, not a conquering king. He sees a slain lamb. And the slain lamb goes and opens the scroll. And the point is because Jesus is, yes, the, the conquering expected king, but an image that describes him just as perfectly is the slain lamb. He's the Passover lamb who has died in place of his people. And it's, this, is, this imagery goes all throughout the Old Testament and even into uh, the New Testament, all the way into Revelation. So the Lord's Supper is the natural continuation of the Passover meal, which uh, the faithful people of God have been observing since the Exodus. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper as Christians, we are observing uh, in, in obedience to what God says in Exodus 12, that we will do this for all time in remembrance of his great deliverance. We do that, and we just point to his more marvelous deliverance that he has done with Christ. Christ, who will go on the cross to die in place of his people. He will shed his blood for them. His body will literally be broken for them, not broken in terms of bones, but that he will physically die for his people. And he will do that so that they don't have to spill their blood and break their bodies. Because that's actually what would be fitting to happen. It's the, the penalty for sin. But Christ dies in place of his people. He is our sacrificial lamb. So what do we do with that? How do we, how do we uh, apply that to our lives? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we actually have to believe that that is true. When, when we as Christians casually think of things like the Lord's Supper, we, we, we often do so to the, to the detriment of our own spiritual vitality. Because in Jesus' body and blood being spilt and broken for us and given in our place, it pictures his love for us. And so to see rightly his sacrifice in the supper, we are, we are rightly seeing how much he actually loves his people how great of a cost it came for him to purchase his people. We are seeing how we are the natural continuation of the people of God from all time. Uh, the, The Lord's Supper is rich with theological truth for us to believe and be filled by. And also, it's doing something radical, which we ought to appreciate more as Christians today. We ought to see with great significance what Jesus accomplishes in his earthly ministry. And I say that particularly for those of us who love the sovereignty of God. Because often the sovereignty of God uh, becomes a kind of thing in which there's never any tension in the Bible. There's never any uh, redemptive historical significance to anything because this was God's plan for all time. There was, no, there was no drama going on. But Luke is certainly trying to develop a kind of drama. And he's trying to say that Jesus in his incarnation and his crucifixion is doing something which is historically significant. It is changing the course of history. It is, it is doing something new. And we ought to appreciate that. It is not as, it is not as though from like Genesis 3, when, when God says the, the serpent will ultimately be crushed, uh, that we just think, oh, it's just smooth sailing from heel. There's a lot of drama that takes place between that time and the redemption of Christ. And in fact, there's a lot of drama that happens after the inauguration of the new covenant until the consummation of the new covenant. There are martyrs who will die for Christ, in the kingdom of God. And that's, that's significant. So we should appreciate the redemptive significance of this event. 
And then that takes us to kind of the final uh, place or the final, let's say, topic that's contained heavily within this text, which is the new covenant. So Luke is unique in the synoptics. If you cross-reference these same verses to Matthew and Mark, you'll notice they don't, they don't mention the new covenant. Luke does. And so Luke is trying to do something uh, significant, I think, uh, in bringing this to mind. Because remember, Luke also writes Acts. And in the book of Acts, what, what Luke is going to be careful to show you is how Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately his ascension, leads to a change in the people of God. It leads to a vitality, a vibrance, a giving of the Holy Spirit, which was unprecedented in history prior. And so this is the new covenant. Now, the new covenant, for those of you who are especially studious Bible readers, uh, that's Jeremiah 31. It's one of the only places in the Old Testament. In fact, if memory serves me right in this moment, I think it is the only place in the Old Testament where the new covenant is explicitly mentioned. Uh, and so uh, we should turn there and see what's going on in Jeremiah 31. What's the, what's the expectancy? So if you'll, if you'll flip there. Uh, Jeremiah 31 is a, a wonderful text. And I would say as Christians, really, uh, it's, this is one of those Old Testament texts that you just, you just have to know the reference to. Uh, if, you, if you've been a Christian for, for some time and you don't know this reference, I would commend heavily to you the careful study of and maybe even the committing of memory uh, these verses here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 from verse 31 through 34. It's what we read for our, our call to worship today. These verses are the hope of the people of God. So hear this renewal. Now keep in mind, in the context of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the same guy who's told, don't pray for the Israelites because they're so far gone. Jeremiah is the, the person who's told Israel is going to be destroyed. The people are going to be exiled. And here in Jeremiah 31 comes this note of hope for the people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is unlike the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer would each one say to his neighbor and each teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Those are wonderful verses. Um, Obviously, there's much more going on in Jeremiah 31. In fact, from Jeremiah chapter 30 through to 33, you have kind of the whole commentary on what's going on in the New Covenant people, uh, what is to be anticipated. But at least for this moment, what Luke is saying when he's saying the New Covenant, he's, he's trying to bring to mind to echo these words in Jeremiah. So Jesus is saying in the Passover meal, hey, when my blood is spilt, that's the New Covenant. So we have to know what, what, what is the New Covenant, right? Um, it's kind of like if you were to, as, as I once did, uh, walk into the wrong uh, math class in junior high. Um, I was in seventh grade. I, I was in the wrong hallway. I made a turn in the wrong classroom. I, I ended up in a math class I wasn't supposed to be in on the first day of school. And I remember just sitting there trying to take notes and pay attention. And I was like, I think I, I, think I missed some things uh, because I don't understand any of what's going on right now. 
And that's a little bit what it can be like when you're reading the New Testament and you've skipped some steps in the Old Testament. You, you're missing some things. So you're not really getting what's going on. You might be reading the words and understanding the thrust, but you're not really getting it, right? Just like I wasn't getting it in that math class. And fortunately for me, I was able to go find my correct classroom later that day. So, uh, but we need to go back to Jeremiah and to find out what is being conveyed. So the New Covenant, uh, we might say, presupposes an old covenant. It expects that there was a covenant prior to this one. And that covenant uh, can be found uh, most narrowly in Moses and Sinai, but really it surmises the covenants which we were given to Noah, to David, to Moses. It's all of the covenants which were anticipatory covenants, the one which expected the consummation of Christ. This is made clear by uh, the book of Hebrews, which says all of the old things, the old covenants were types and shadows which pointed to their substance, which is Christ. So here the new covenant is the substance of the things old. And this new covenant is made with Israel and with Judah. And by God's grace, Christian, you have been grafted into the house of Israel and the house of Judah by, by your engrafting with, with Christ. This new covenant is, not, is going to be different from the one which was made prior. And then we have to ask the question, different how? So it's not different in the sense that the new covenant contains grace and the old ones didn't. Because in the very next verse, uh, right after he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day, notice what he says, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, God showed his grace in the Mosaic covenant to lead his people out of Egypt. That was his sovereign grace to do that. So the new covenant is, is new, not in the sense that it's gracious, the old one was. Uh, it's going to be new, uh, in the sense that his people can't break it. Uh, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So, so what's new about the new covenant is the fact that God's people uh, won't be able to do away with this covenant. This, this covenant is here to stay, and it's going to bring to end, it's going to bring to culmination all of the covenants which preceded it. This is the final covenant which is to be ratified. So, Uh, The new covenant expects a lot of things. Verse 33, uh, it is the covenant which is made with Israel. uh, And in this covenant, the law of the Lord will be put within them. And he will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So God writing the law within them, writing it on their hearts, that's a wonderful blessing. And as Christians, we can say that when when we are converted, when we are are bought by the blood of Christ, when we are... uh, united with him, that we long to obey him, not simply because we have this external set of commands which tells us how to obey, but by his grace, that is something that dwells within our hearts, that we, we love, we, we yearn to obey God by the grace of his spirit. He has put his law within our heart. But actually, that same grace, Christian, was true of Old Testament Israelites as well. They also had the law of God, law of God in their hearts. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, Moses says, Uh, about that same thing. Also in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, uh, Moses says to the people, uh, this law of God, which is on your hearts, you ought to be careful to obey. Or in Deuteronomy 30, 30, 14, he says, be careful to not say this is too far away from you, for God has put the law very near to you, into your mouth and into your hearts. So we we are heirs with Israel of the law of God, which has been given to us. And this law, this obeying of the law, Makes us, uh, makes us united with God. It makes us identify as his people. Now, as Christians, uh, we've talked about this, uh, I think, several times in the last couple months as a church. 
uh, Christians don't say uh, there is no law anymore, right? We do follow God's law, uh, but by his grace, we also love his law, all right? The difference between a Christian and a legalist is a legalist will say that God's law must be obeyed in order to gain favor with God, and a Christian says, I must obey God's law because I love my Lord and I wish to serve him. It's not a difference about what the law says, it's a difference about from what posture do you obey it, for what is your motivation to obey it. So we keep the law of God because the new covenant has a law which Christians are to love. And also, we will know the Lord intimately, and not, not just, not just uh, a couple of us knowing the Lord, all of them from the least to the greatest one of the Lord, there will be this intimacy, this, this lack of a hierarchy, which will be present in the new covenant people. Um, in the old covenant communities, to know the Lord was a mediatorial thing done through priests. Through priests, you came to temple worship. Through priests, you came to sacrifice and know the Lord. And in the new covenant, Christ is our high priest. He mediates the covenant to us directly. And so each of us will know the Lord from the least to the greatest intimately. There will be no mediatorial hierarchy. And the culmination of this covenant is the forgiveness of sins. Now, all of that Luke desires to bring to your mind when he says the new covenant is being poured out in the blood of the Lamb. And so what do we take away from this? Well, we have to say, we have to say that Christ is doing something significant here in the inauguration of the new covenant, something which is the anticipation of all of the Old Testament prophets, and it's something of which we are the benefactors of. The new covenant is now inaugurated in the Christian church, and it will be one day consummated when Christ returns again. And the very fact that Christ has not finally returned is evident in the fact that we observe the Lord's Supper week over week, right? We are to do this in remembrance of him for as long as he delays until we are consummately joined with him in his new creation. So this is something that we do uh, as, a, as a holdover of sorts to remind us and bring to our minds the great blessings which God has conferred to us by his blood. Now, uh, there's one more thing that I, I need to deal with, uh, which is uh, what do we actually think is happening when we today eat of the Lord's Supper and, and drink of the, the wine? What's actually going on? Um, there's uh, two views I'll address. There's more views than just this. Um, if you've possibly heard the terms transubstantiation or consubstantiation, uh, those are two views that if you have questions about, be happy to answer. We just don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, I'm going to try to deal with uh, the two, what, what we would typically call the two more common Protestant views of the Lord's Supper. Uh, one of them is called the memorialist view, and one of them is called the spiritual presence view. Okay? That's a lot of words. Uh, they're actually pretty easy to understand. Uh, the memorialist view of the Lord's Supper would say what's going on in the Lord's Supper is that, is that we are bringing to mind once again what Christ has accomplished. That's what the memorialist view would say. In the Lord's Supper, what's happening is we are bringing to, to memory to memorialize what Christ has accomplished on the cross and also obviously looking forward to his future return. But that the bread and the body, uh, the bread and the, and the cup, they are symbols and symbols only, meaning they symbolize things that they point to uh, and they confer no more. That's called the memorialist view. Uh, it's held by many, many faithful believers. Um, traces its origins to Ulrich Zwingli in the Reformation. There's another view called the spiritual presence view, 
uh, which is the view uh, held by uh, guys like John Calvin and others who would, would hearken from the, that same uh, tr Protestant tradition. Uh, and what they would say, the spiritual presence view would say, the elements are uh, memorializing Christ's death and looking forward to his future return. Um, but they're also causing us to participate in the blood and the body of Christ in a way that God's grace is conferred upon his people as they eat the bread and they drink the cup. So the spiritual presence view says these are not just symbols or pictures, but actually that God's grace is uniquely conferred in the giving of the body uh, and the drinking of the cup. So to, to, uh, to see that uh, in the text of scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, says, when, when we drink the cup of blessing, uh, are we not participating in the body of our Lord? And so uh, it, is, it is with that that uh, we would say, uh, I would say, that what's happening in communion is not simply that we are remembering that Christ died. That is certainly happening. But by faith, we are also feeding upon the grace of our Lord, which he is giving to us in his elements. That communion is not simply just pictures, symbols, uh, but it's also God conferring his grace to us uniquely. In the same way in which uh, the preaching of a sermon is not simply us being given intellectual information. It's God uniquely blessing his people through the work of his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit being active in the fellowship of the saints together is, what, what me, is, is how God conveys his grace to his people in the, in the partaking of the supper. And so this uh, is, is uh, something that I, I would commend to you for further study if you've never looked into it before. Um, I say all of that to say um, that any of those two positions that I've just given you, the memorialist view or the spiritual presence view, um, either of those would be better than what I would say is the common evangelical view, which is like a non-view of the Lord's Supper, uh, which is what the Lord's Supper is, is another thing that Christians do. I would say if that's where you're at with the Lord's Supper, please study it, learn it, and understand what's going on as we as Christians partake in this meal together. Now, with that, uh, there's at least one note of, of application that we can make. When we gather as saints to worship on the Lord's Day, uh, I hope that this does not become some dead habit for you. As a believer, we are, we are joined together in worship on the Lord's Day. But more than that, God is doing something unique to you by the grace of his Holy Spirit in all of what we do as a worshiping people on this day. It is a day of rest, but it's also a day in which he gives you his spirits to uniquely renew you for the week ahead. It is a day in which he, by his word, edifies you and sanctifies you and strengthens you for what you are to face. He feeds his people through the worshiping on the Lord's day. And so we as his people should not neglect to worship him. Uh, we should join with other Christians to worship the Lord on Sunday so that we can benefit from the grace which God has given to us. Now, that does not mean when you're on Monday morning reading the word uh, on your own uh, in, the, in, the dark of, in the dark of the morning that, that God is not going to meet you there as well and confer his grace upon you. What, what I do mean to say, though, is that God, by, by the gathering of his people together, uniquely is pleased to bless his people here in these moments, as we would call as Christians the means of grace the preaching of the word, the partaking in the Lord's Supper. Even baptism is a means of grace which God seeks to edify his people through. Um, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, these are things that God has given to us 
not just as things that we do, as routines that we partake in, but as things by which he gives us his grace so that we might be benefits, uh, so we might be the beneficiaries of them. And the fact that he commands his people to do it regularly speaks to the fact that he knows how weak and forgetful we are. We are indeed a very uh, slow to understand, hard-hearted people. Uh, even in the New Covenant, I know that I'm not speaking alone here when I say, sometimes the best truths that I hear from those scriptures uh, as I read them and as I study them and as I hear them preached, uh, they're just the things that I have known, just kind of said in a way that was right when I needed to hear it. So often as, as students of scripture, we're not learning brand new things. We're learning new things in a light in which we can actually appreciate them better or more fully by God's grace. So with that, um, let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Father in God, we thank you for your grace, which is demonstrated in your son, who sought to deliver his people from captivity, from bondage, from enslavement, at the cost of his very life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have been pleased to rescue us. And not just to rescue us, but also to make us new, uh, remake us into your image as a people who are to be your possession. We are, not, uh, we are not a random people who identify ourselves. Uh, we are your people, identified by our union with you. Lord, we thank you that you have done this uh, as an active means of redemption. That you came from heaven with great cost to yourself, purchased us, and that you long to commune with us, Lord. Lord, would that encourage us as believers in our darkest moments? Would we know your love for us, which is manifestly displayed in your life, but is even true today as you hold out your hands for us to commune with you? Lord, we thank you for the grace which is evident in the giving of yourself. And we thank you for the love which it displayed. We pray this all together as Christ's people. Amen. Well, should not shock you that we're going to go take the Lord's Supper together now. Um, and uh, there's very little uh, left to say on this, so I will content myself with one uh, just short invitation to those of you who are believers. Um, if you're a Christian, uh, all of the significance of the Lord's Supper does not need to be actively in your brain at all times. Can't forget any part or else it doesn't count. Uh, we feed by faith, even with very little access. Consider how the disciples are able to partake in the supper uh, and they don't even yet understand all of what's about to take place. They're still surprised by the resurrection. They're still surprised by the ascension. They, they still haven't seen all that and they are able to partake in this meal. Surely you can partake in this meal even if you, don't, even if you can't pen a thesis paper on all of what it means. Uh, we are not requiring intellectual perfection in order to benefit from the supper. But also, we are, we are asking for a thoughtfulness, a carefulness, a weight with which we say, uh, we are not doing these things as habits which we always partake in. Uh, we want to be conscious, to consider our own position before the Lord, to consider our own heart posture towards him, to quiet our hearts, and to say, we long to meet with him in his supper. We long to meet with him and to be the beneficiaries of his grace. And that is what I uh, invite you towards today. So uh, as a note of logistics, uh, we will have uh, bread and gluten-free bread available for you. 
We'll also have wine uh, and grape juice. Wine will be on the left and grape juice will be on the right. Um, and you will come forward. Uh, if you are a believer in Christ, you will come forward. You will take the elements, return back to your seats, and then we will all eat and drink the elements together. Uh, and yeah, that's all needs to be said there. Christian, you are invited to come forward for the communion table. His body broken for you. 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 His body body broken for you his 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 body broken for you. 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 body of Christ, which is broken for you, take and eat. Blood of Christ shed for you, take and drink. Church, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you would pass those uh, towards the middle, uh, we will collect them uh, in some way, shape, or form. And uh, once that is done, you are invited to stand and join us as we continue in worship.